All right. We're going to do this. We are. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Today, we're going to talk about Trump's economy versus Joe Biden's on today's show. Trump's economic numbers versus Joe Biden's, because already Republicans are spinning things to make it look like Trump's administration were the halcyon days, the good old days. They're, they're going to try to present in 2024 as if Donald Trump has a record to run on. He doesn't. Joe Biden's numbers, in terms of the framework, are phenomenal. Trump's were a disaster, but Republicans are liars. They spin, and Americans can't remember what happened yesterday. So we need to get our arms around this and be prepared to refute these lies. 2024 is going to be a brutal, brutal dogfight. So in a few moments, I'm going to go over the numbers and the lies that you can expect from your crazy uncle tomorrow during Christmas dinner, if you choose to engage. I don't know if you're going to. But first, this is the mop-up for December 24th. Yes, it's December 24th, 2023. Thank you for finding me. It's Christmas Eve. I'm David Feldman. Please share this. With all your friends, please like this video, this episode, this podcast, so I remain in your feed, subscribe to my newsletter, and of course, my channel. This is an audio podcast. Take me with you on your next walk, your next drive, by downloading this wherever you get your podcasts. Some good news for Joe Biden, whose poll numbers are at this stage of his presidency, the lowest of any modern American president. Makes absolutely no sense. I can't figure it out. Oh, right. We're a nation of idiots. Well, there's some good news. Inflation in November dipped below 3% on an annualized rate. Now, we're almost approaching what they call a Goldilocks economy, a Goldilocks economy, where the economy is not too hot, not too cold, just right, where inflation is at 2% and unemployment is at 4%. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. That's a Goldilocks economy. That's how the people in charge view our economy, like a bowl of soup. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Tens of, million of, tens of millions of Americans are falling through the cracks, living paycheck to paycheck. If they're lucky, they're living paycheck to paycheck, or they're living on the streets, or they're racking up debt, choosing between food and rent. I know, but try the soup. It's just right. Americans have Obamacare, but they can't afford to use it. They have jobs, but no disposable income. They can't afford college or a vacation. I know, but try the soup. It won't burn your tongue. It's just right. Los Angeles, San Francisco, and parts of Manhattan look like third world countries. I know, but try the soup. Obviously, this is not how you and I would measure our economy. We don't look at it as a bowl of soup. I see a bowl of something else. 
But uh, for the people who measure these things, economists from both sides of the political spectrum, this, what we have right now under Joe Biden, this is what they consider success. Let me put it another way. Based on the current yardsticks we have in place, this right now, I know you're not going to believe it, is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets by the yardsticks we use until we realize, as Bobby Kennedy said, our gross national product measures everything except what makes life worth living. This will be how we measure things. And by we, I mean the neoliberals. Based on their measurements, this is as good as it gets. Low unemployment, low inflation. So why do people not feel it? Why, why is Joe Biden below water with his approval rating? Well, maybe the approval rating is the wrong yardstick. Maybe his approval rating may not be a leading indicator of how he's going to do next November. Now, this economy doesn't work for nearly half the people who live here, which means the people we send to Washington, D.C. don't work for nearly half the people who live here. Until there is a tension between those who want state ownership of most businesses and those who want everything privatized, until this country has a a tension between the people who want state ownership and the people who want everything privatized, until the people who want state ownership are as powerful as the people who want everything privatized, until it's split 50-50, where half this economy is privatized and half is run by the government, then as far as I'm concerned, we will never have a Goldilocks economy. As far as I'm concerned, my vision of the American economy would be a hybrid Nordic model where the state competes with private enterprise to see who can do it better. A healthy, perpetual competition between capitalism and socialism. The two, I believe, can coexist in the same economy. They do coexist in the American economy. But as you know, it's socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. I'll discuss that on another show. Right now I'm talking Joe Biden's poll numbers, which are in the dumper. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. He's doing everything a Democratic president in the model of Bill Clinton should be doing. And to some degree, going back as far as Jimmy Carter, who was a member of the Trilateral Commission, Joe Biden is doing everything a Reagan-era Democrat, everything a Reagan-era Democratic president needs to do. And that includes Jimmy Carter, who began to deregulate our economy. A Reagan-era Democratic president is strong on jobs. He's strong on inflation, beating inflation. He's strong on defense. He pays lip service to all the things that were important to FDR, Kennedy, and Johnson. But when you think of Kennedy, Johnson, FDR, yes, you think about jobs, especially Roosevelt. 
But from Kennedy and Johnson, certainly FDR, you also heard a call to our better angels to take care of those less fortunate, to fight for civil rights, to acknowledge that some people, by virtue of their birth, have it easier than others. And yes, Joe Biden tries that. And he did lift more children out of poverty with the child tax credit, more than any president since Lyndon Johnson. But Republicans let it lapse and child poverty immediately doubled. Now, I'm not going to blame Biden for this because he's a product of the Clinton model of what a Democratic president should be. The child tax credit lapsed because the Democrats don't lead with child poverty the way Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson did back in the 1960s. It started, as I said, a little with Carter, but when Bill Clinton became president, the Democrats changed the game. Clinton got reelected by throwing people off welfare. The new Democratic Party was about jobs, education, which means blaming the victims, lowering inflation, balancing the budget, juicing the stock market, and throwing as much money as you can at the Pentagon. That became the measure of a Democratic president's success. So by that yardstick, by that measurement, Joe Biden might be the most successful Democratic president of that model, more successful than Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. Okay, it's a different yardstick than the one LBJ, Bobby Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, Roosevelt were using. But in terms of how success is measured for a post-LBJ, for a Bill Clinton Democrat, Joe Biden checks all the boxes, more so than any Democratic president we've had since Carter and Clinton changed the model. But the, the model was changed, and Joe Biden is, is succeeding at a game that maybe this country doesn't want Democratic presidents to be playing anymore. This country has changed. Too many Americans don't trust the yardsticks anymore. Okay, I'm voting for Joe Biden. You know that. Uh, and I'm, he's the best we have right now. So what is the game afoot? As I usually say, only 40% of Americans who are eligible to vote actually vote. Okay. Now, in 2020, it was 66% of eligible voters because people were scared out of their minds. Trump was the largest turnout in 2020 for any election since 1900. But usually it sinks down to the, the 40s, maybe the 50s. In 2020, 66% of eligible voters turned out. It was incredible. And those are the only people who count when it comes to 2024. That's the game afoot. I tend to think half this country can't come up with $500 for an emergency. We know that. Well, those are the people who don't vote. I have no evidence to back that up. But I'm going to assume, let me know in the comments section, maybe 
this is unreasonable, but, but half this country can't come up with $500 for an emergency. I would assume most of them are the people who don't vote. Again, that's the game, playing to half of all eligible voters who actually vote. Now, we're being told that Biden's approval rating is at a record low. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the Gallup poll, for example, it means they took a random sampling of 1,013 people from all 50 states who are 18 years old and above. So it's completely random. It's a sampling of anybody who's stupid enough to answer their phone. Now, I don't answer my phone, and who knows? Maybe this, this Gallup survey that they do every month, maybe it's an accurate measure of the country writ large. But the country writ large, in terms of the game, means nothing. We're talking about who's going to get reelected. All who matters are the likely voters, not eligible voters, likely voters. That is all who matter. And, you know, maybe Gallup got it right. Maybe half the country thinks the economy isn't working for them, and it isn't, and so they don't approve of Biden. But they're probably not going to vote. Now, last week, I talked about this. The New York Times came out with polling that showed Biden losing to Trump. That was the big headline, except when you looked at the internals and you saw that likely voters, among likely, likely voters, Biden was tied, if not beating Trump. So, as John Edwards said in 2008, when he was running for the Democratic nomination and he lost to Barack Obama, there are two Americas. That's why I voted for John Edwards. He would have been a great president. There are two Americas. We know that. There is the America where America isn't working for anyone. And as I said, that's about half the country, and those are the people who tend not to vote. And then there's the America that does work for the people who live in America and vote. And Biden is going to do a lot better with those people. Because in the America that works, America's working better than it's ever worked before. For half this country, if you own stock, if you own your own home, if you have a savings account, a 401k, a job, maybe some parents who are going to leave you some money, you're doing great. You're doing better probably than people your age have ever done before. And you vote. So what is really going on with the economy right now? What's the truth about the economy? Because in the end, that's people vote with their wallets. That's why Republicans have to bring up cultural issues. America always does better when the Democrats are in charge. So Republicans have to invent things like transgender bathrooms or transgender people using the wrong bathroom. They can't run on their economic record. 
unless they lie. So how is the economy right now? The entire economy for both Americas? Hard to say because we don't really measure the entire economy. We don't measure the underground economy, the money laundering, the drug money, and most importantly, the oligarchs' money flooding the real estate market. We don't talk about that. The reason it's impossible to buy a home, the reason rent is so exorbitant, is all the dirty money being laundered through real estate. We don't talk about that. So how we measure the yardsticks we use favor the rich, favor the half of America for whom this economy and country works. We, we don't measure the entire economy. But if you're going to a Christmas dinner, you're probably going to be around people for whom the economy in this country works. And this is going to be some of the conversation you're going to be hearing at Christmas tomorrow. The Washington Post's Abba Batari has a piece that you should read. It gives you an idea of some of the difficulties Democrats are going to have making the case for another four years of Joe Biden. Now, I have to be careful here because some of my listeners don't listen to what I'm saying or they take me literally. And sometimes they think when I give the other side, they, they, all they hear is my taking the other side as opposed to warning you what the other side is going to say. Okay, I am not making the case for Donald Trump. I'm all in on Biden. Bernie isn't running. I'm all Elizabeth Warren isn't running. I'm all in on Biden. I am reporting what the Washington Post says when they compare the Biden economy to the Trump economy. And this will be the conversation moving forward in 2024. I've been repeating the macro numbers for the past year, and they are, and it's true, Biden created more jobs than any president in American history. That's a fact, 14 million jobs. Unprecedented. Trump lost more jobs than any president since Hoover and the Great Depression. That's a fact. Irrefutable. But here are some reasons American voters may not see what I see. According to the Post, the Democrats can claim record unemployment. Record unemployment for blacks, for women and minorities, for the disabled. And despite June's Supreme Court ruling, Biden has forgiven billions of dollars in student debt. I think, I have to double check, I think he forgave something like $120 billion in student debt. But the big question for voters, for the half of America that votes, are you better today than you were four years ago? That is the question. Again, I'm talking voters, not the country. If you're a voter, are you better off now than you were four years ago when Trump shit the bed on COVID and the economy completely tanked and one million Americans died unnecessarily? Well, obviously, you're better off. 
But Republicans are going to make counterclaims. They're going to spin and lie. They're going to say, and partly this is partly true, under Trump we had low interest rates, cheaper energy prices, and inflation compared to what's going on. Well, inflation has been curbed, but compared to what happened in 2022, uh, inflation was not an issue during Trump's presidency. So the Republicans can say because of inflation, Americans right now have less disposable income under Biden than they did under Trump. Now, that may be partly true, but unemployment numbers are down, but wages are keeping up with inflation. That wasn't happening in 2022, but we have low unemployment. And because the unemployment is so low, wages go up and outpace inflation. Okay, that's the conversation that you're going to have to have with Republicans or with people who are supposedly on the fence. I don't know why anybody would be on the fence. Okay, I just took a sip. You heard a gulp. I apologize. Uh, Republicans are also going to claim that the price of housing, rent, or purchasing a home soared under Biden. Well, of course. But what they're going to leave out is that Republicans are the cause of higher home prices and higher rent because they're the ones who refuse to build low-income housing. They're the ones who don't want the government to invest in free housing. They still insist that the market, only the market can solve the housing crisis. Only the market, the free market, can cure soaring rents and the homeless crisis. What about that? The market. That's what the Republicans say. Just let the market decide. Well, there is no housing market. That's the first lie. But Republicans blame the housing crisis. They blame homelessness. They blame it all on rent control. They blame it on government regulation. It's all a lie. They blamed the financial collapse in 2008 on too much, too much regulation. We all know what caused the financial crisis. Glass-Steagall was repealed under Clinton, and it took about eight years for these pigs on Wall Street to crash the economy because of deregulation. But this is what they're going to claim. So I'm preparing you for what their narrative is going to be and how mainstream journalists who want a horse race because it's best for their bottom line if the election is tight. This is how mainstream journalists are going to both sides this issue. They're going to repeat these lies, these Republican lies that I just told you. There aren't two sides. So you should read this piece in the Washington Post. It's called Biden's Economy versus Trump's in 12 charts. I believe this piece will serve as the font, the fount, the font, the foundation for every disagreement you hear in the next three months coming from both sides. I think I think most people on the left, people on the right, 
will cite this article to bolster their their argument. I think this article in the Washington Post yesterday, it's called Biden's Economy versus Trump's in 12 Charts. This will be the story that all the pundits and your friends will be working off. So here is what Trump can claim. Now, it pains me to parrot this. Unemployment, he's going to say, dropped to 3.5% in 2020. He was president in 2020. We hit full unemployment in 2020 under Trump. Got down to 3.5%. Below 4% is full employment. He's going to say it hit 3.5% and then COVID hit. So he's going to say, because he always has excuses, it was the Chinese who destroyed our economy with COVID. That's what he's been saying. You know, Trump cheats at golf. He constantly gives himself mulligans. He forgives his mistakes. He makes excuses. If I wasn't distracted by the pelican, I wouldn't have sliced that shot. Give me another ball. And, and that's what he's going to do, and that's what he is doing with his economy. He's going to insist it's not fair. It's so unfair to factor in COVID when you count my job numbers. you gotta, you got to count my economy before I shit the bed on COVID. This is how Republicans operate. It's identical to George W. Bush insisting he kept us safe from terrorist attacks except for that one day he didn't. Just one day. He ran for re-election in 2004. I'm not making this up. Insisting he kept us safe and that he was stronger than John Kerry on fighting terrorists and keeping us safe. Except for that one day. One day. That's what Republicans do. It's so unfair to judge me on just one Massive mistake. So, other than completely shitting the bed on COVID, which destroyed the economy, I did a great job. Well, what's the truth? Gas prices, all you hear from Republicans is it's the pain at the pump. Gas prices began doubling. It started in April of 2020 when Trump was in office and it by 2022, when Biden was president, the price of gas had doubled. Well, who, who's to blame for that? If you want to spin it, want to be, if you want to be stupid and point fingers, you blame Trump. It started, the price of gasoline started going up when Trump was president in April of 2020. The truth is presidents have no control over gas prices, even though they get blamed. Now, inflation is separate from gas prices. Inflation is the result of two things. Inflation is the result possibly, possibly of fiscal spending, possibly. It involves Congress and the president fighting it out. Inflation is possibly uh, caused by monetary policy, which the chairman of the Federal Reserve is supposed to administer independently. So that's where, and then there are the supply chain issues. The inflation that we had in 2022 was caused by two things, 
supply chain issues, and greedflation. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, blames all the inflation on supply chain issues. He's not blaming greedflation because the people who are guilty of greedflation gave him the job as chairman of the Federal Reserve. So he's just going to blame it on supply chain issues. It had nothing to do, inflation had nothing to do with the trillions upon trillions of dollars that Joe Biden and the Democrats pumped into our economy the first two years he was in office. That's a fact. That's what the chairman of the Fed says. So oil prices, they're going to, the Republicans point fingers. They blame the, the rising price of gas on Joe Biden, even though it's reached a two-year low. They're still going to say, we had lower gas prices when Trump was president. Okay, let me try to explain this as best as I don't understand it. But let me pretend that I understand this. I think I understand this. Oil prices have nothing to do with Joe Biden. They're determined by OPEC, how much OPEC opens or closes the spigot, as well as supply and demand based on how the world economy is doing. Despite what Trump and the Republicans say, you can't drill your way to cheaper gas prices. Why is that? Because that's what, that is just received wisdom when you hear any Republicans talk about the rising price of gas, we have to drill, baby, drill. But you cannot. It is impossible to drill your way to cheaper gas prices. And this is why. And this is the truth. During the Obama administration, the development of fracking, which started under Bush-Cheney, Fracking got so sophisticated by the time Obama was president that the oil companies were able to drill parts of the Permian Basin that were once impenetrable. And that created a glut. It turned out to be a bad thing because it was so easy to get this oil. The, the price of oil dropped precipitously because there was a glut on the market. Now, you need to understand that because of the oil shock back in the 1970s, there was a gas shortage, an artificial gas shortage in America, supposedly created by OPEC after they turned off the spigots to punish America for supporting Israel in the Yom, Yom Kippur War, which I believe was 1973. I think it would be 1973. And that began these oil shocks. The oil companies, by the way, made a fortune during the oil shocks. There was a shortage of oil. The prices went through the roof. And Exxon and Texaco and Chevron, they had record profits. I'll get to that in a second, okay? So... When OPEC turned off the spigot to punish America, uh, we, this country, decided to make it illegal to export our domestic oil. Any oil, any crude oil, had to be kept here so we could achieve energy independence. 
Are you following this? Because it, 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 we, we, we wanted to keep an oil reserve so that OPEC could never do what they did to us in the 70s. So we made it against the law for crude oil to be exported, had to be, had to be sold only in America. And then the fracking glut hit during the Obama administration. And the oil companies had too much oil. And they couldn't, if there's too much oil, they can't charge enough. So they lobbied and lobbied the Democrats, right, and the Republicans, and Congress lifted the ban on oil exports. The oil companies said, we're dying here with all this oil. We can only sell it domestically. And we government opened domestic oil production to the world. And so, and this is what you really need to understand because Republicans don't, and this allows them to lie, and our economy and our climate is at stake. The price for our oil, for America, was pegged to the cost of oil for the world market. Not the market here in the United States, because now we were exporting our own gas and there was no difference between selling to California or selling to India. We'll just give our oil to the highest bidder. So it was pegged, the price of oil got pegged to the world market as opposed to the domestic market. And so the price of gas and heating oil was no longer determined by supply and demand here in America. It was determined by worldwide supply and, and demand. And that began began under in, during the Obama administration. So anyone who claims the solution to bringing down the cost of oil or gas is drill, baby, drill, well, they either don't understand how this works or they're willfully ignorant. They're pretending to be ignorant because they're getting money from the oil companies. They're probably ignorant. I hate to talk that way, but if you watch Fox News, they give you a catechism, a false catechism about why oil prices go up and go down. We need to drill more. It's, it's a lie. So, again, we drill baby drilled during the Obama administration because Bush and Cheney developed fracking, and the oil companies panicked. Oil be- Under Obama, oil became so cheap, what happens? Profits go down for the oil companies. This is really important to remember. If the price of oil is exorbitant, The profits for the oil companies are massive. Again, they lobbied Washington. The oil companies lobbied Washington during the Obama administration to get rid of energy independence, basically. Let us sell this stuff everywhere. And now we do. Now we sell our domestic gas and oil all around the world, which means the president has zero control over the price of oil. And here's another one of the 20 million dirty dark secrets about oil production. 
and this is really important. During COVID, the oil companies realized it was more profitable not to drill for oil. Now, they, the supply chain issues that began with COVID gave the oil companies an excuse to cut back on drilling and refining, and they created an artificial shortage of oil, which allowed them to double the price of gas and oil from March of 2020, when Trump was president, to around March of 2022. And that doubled their profits. Do you remember 2022 when the oil companies, we were talking about windfall profit taxes last year because Exxon was reporting record profits and they were selling less oil. They drilled less, they created a shortage and got to charge more. So the oil companies... They really don't want to drill, baby, drill. They're spending less money on research and development. Too much overhead. Drilling, it's too expensive to drill. It's a, so it's more profitable to put less oil into the marketplace and just charge more for it. Create artificial scarcity. That's what they do with diamonds. There's no, there's no scarcity of diamonds. The De Beers family just a trickle of diamonds come out of their minds and people think, oh, diamonds must be expensive. They're rare. They're not. It's artificial scarcity that creates huge prices and profits. So anytime a Republican blames high energy costs on environmentalists or Biden not allowing the oil companies to drill, it's lying or they don't understand why the price of oil goes up, or they don't understand that the new business model for the oil companies is don't drill, artificial scarcity. Be like the De Bears. Keep the diamonds in the mine. Artificial scarcity. There's more money in artificial scarcity. In fact... An argument could be made that as we move more and more towards alternative energy, oil companies will remain as profitable as they are today, if not more profitable, because with less demand for oil, there will be less drilling. And less drilling means there will be less oil. And less oil means they get to charge more for it with no overhead. Even though the demand for oil will decrease dramatically. The supply will also decrease dramatically, and that means the oil companies can charge way more for it without any of the overhead of drilling. All right. I don't know why I went down that rabbit hole. Uh, okay. Anybody still here? The FBI is looking into death threats against the Colorado Supreme Court justices who voted to take Donald Trump's name off the ballot. Trump websites and Trump discussion forums call for the beheading of some of the judges and even worse. 
the Democratic Secretary of State in Colorado, Jenna Griswold, who said she was open to removing Trump's name from the ballot in Colorado, but needed guidance from the courts, says she's received so many death threats she has stopped counting. According to reports, she received nearly 70 credible death threats and 900 non-lethal threats and abuse. You know, one of the most underreported stories of the past seven years is the exponential number of death threats made against election workers, judges, jurors, and Republican members of Congress who Trump perceives as his enemy. This is unprecedented. We have become so hardened, so coarsened by Trump We just figure it's part of the discourse. The death threats are just part of it. We take, we take it as a given that yeah, if you're gonna, if you're gonna challenge Donald Trump, if you're a judge, a prosecutor, a juror, a witness, a member of Congress, you're gonna need round-the-clock security. This is what Trump brought to American politics when Jim Jordan was running for Speaker. What was that? Two months ago. How quickly we forget that one of his campaign tricks was death threats to Republicans who wouldn't endorse him, who said they weren't going to vote for him. Never forget, 99.999% of all the death threats come from MAGA Republicans. The New York Times reports that Uh, Besides Colorado, there are lawsuits in 16 other states citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment trying to scrub Donald Trump from their ballots. Now, most of these lawsuits will probably be dismissed as frivolous. Lawfare has a list of all 16 lawsuits. And from what I can tell, I went through them. These are the states to keep an eye on. Oregon. These are where there are legitimate lawsuits uh, trying to scrub uh, Trump's name from the ballot. Oregon, believe it or not, Wyoming has a legitimate lawsuit. Minnesota, Michigan, maybe Wisconsin, Virginia, Florida, and of course, Maine. Maine, where that decision is expected to be made next week by Maine's Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, She is a Democrat who was elected by the Maine State Legislature to serve as Secretary of State. No matter what her decision next week, her decision, like all the others around the country, will eventually find their way to the United States Supreme Court, I would assume, the first two weeks of January. It's going to be an interesting, enjoy how quiet things are right now. Once 2024 starts, there's a, it's going to be, there's a lot that's going to be happening. Now, as you know, a small victory, a Pyrrhic victory for Donald Trump late in the week when the United States Supreme Court rejected special counsel Jack Smith's request to leapfrog over the appeals courts and issue a ruling on whether the president of the United States has immunity from prosecution for any crimes he may have committed while serving in office. Had the court taken the question, had the Supreme Court taken the question, it would have permitted Jack Smith's election interference trial to begin as scheduled in March. 
Trump has repeatedly asked that this trial be delayed until after the 2024 presidential election. Some legal experts say, and this is why I said the delay, the, the Supreme Court refusing to allow the appeal to leapfrog may be a pyrrhic victory for Trump. Some legal experts say that by not taking up the question of presidential immunity before the appeals courts do, the Supreme Court on the surface looks like it's done Trump's dirty work, delaying the trial by as much as possibly three months so this presidential immunity question can work its way through the appeals process. Okay, that's what That's the way it looks as of this morning. However, some say that the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, that's where the question goes next, supposed to go to the Supreme Court. Instead, the Supreme Court sent it to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And some are saying it is probable that that court will uphold the ruling made by the presiding judge in the trial, Judge Tanya Chutkin, who said there's no such thing as presidential immunity. And they will say the trial starts in March. It is conceivable that the appeals court, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, will expedite their decision and not only rule there's no such thing as presidential immunity, They will also rule that the trial must stay on schedule before the Supreme Court issues their decision. So we may still see a March date for the election interference trial. Wisconsin is a swing state. According to Forbes magazine, four of the last six presidential elections in Wisconsin went to either a Democrat or a Republican by a narrow margin, averaging fewer than 30,000 votes. That's a, a swing state where the difference between the winner and the loser of the presidential race in Wisconsin is about 30,000 votes. So one would think the state government of Wisconsin would reflect that almost 50-50 split, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Republicans control the state house because of gerrymandering, and there's now a new liberal majority on Wisconsin State Supreme Court this year. There was talk of Republicans trying to impeach the newly elected Democratic judge because she campaigned on a promise to address the legislative maps. So they were saying, well, if you ran... Uh, to sit on the Supreme Court to review the legislative maps, you should not be judging the maps. Well, that's why she she was elected to judge the maps, and those calls to impeach her seem to be receding. And now the state Supreme Court of Wisconsin has ordered new legislative maps to be drawn before the 2024 election in Wisconsin. The court this week warned the state legislature to either redraw the maps or the Wisconsin Supreme Court will redraw them for them. Either you do it or we're going to do it. Right now, 
the legislative maps in Wisconsin have been drawn so that despite Wisconsin evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, Republicans, this is how gerrymandering works. Republicans have a 64 to 35 majority in the lower house and a super majority of 22 to 11 in the state Senate. Now, Obviously, those maps don't reflect the split in Wisconsin. Now, you got Tony Evers. He's the governor of Wisconsin. He's a Democrat, which suggests the overall popular vote in Wisconsin without gerrymandering would favor Democrats. You got Ron Johnson. He just got reelected to the Senate. He's a Republican. And you have Tammy Baldwin. She's the state's other senator. She's a Democrat. So this is a state that's split right down the line, not reflected in the legislative maps. So clearly a state house with such huge Republican majorities, a product of gerrymandering. I am not sure how this will affect congressional elections in Wisconsin. I don't know if they're going to make new Uh, congressional seats in Wisconsin or not. If you know, let me know in the comments section. You're looking right now at Harvard-educated Jeffrey Clark in his underwear as his home is being searched last year for evidence linking him to President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. I guess Harvard never taught Jeffrey Clark to put on a pair of pants before you answer the door. You just never know. It might be the Justice Department with a warrant to search your home. Jeffrey Clark was a low-level attorney in the Justice Department who was introduced to Donald Trump by Congressman Scott Perry right after the 2020 presidential election. Trump at the time complained to Scott Perry that nobody in the Justice Department, nobody would help him prove voter fraud. And I do mean nobody. Scott Perry, who up until a month ago was chairman of the Freedom Caucus and the FBI has also seized his phone to see what role he played on January 6th. They're still looking into uh, Congressman Perry. Uh, But back in 2020, right after the presidential election, when Trump was complaining that nobody in the Justice Department was willing to help, Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania said, I know a guy. His name is Jeffrey Clark. And so Donald Trump had to dig down deep into the rancid bowels of the Justice Department to find Jeffrey Clark, who agreed, yes, there was evidence of rampant voter fraud. Unfortunately for Trump, all that evidence was in Jeffrey Clark's head. It was imaginary. But it was enough to convince Donald Trump to appoint him acting attorney general. He was going to appoint Jeffrey Clark acting attorney general until pretty much the entire Justice Department threatened to quit if Donald Trump did that. This is why Jeffrey Clark, in his underwear, uh, is one of the 19 co-defendants in the Georgia RICO trial. And he's trying to get his case severed from the state courts and moved into a federal courtroom where he's convinced he can get a fairer trial. Clark is making the supremacy clause argument that because he was a federal employee at the time 
of the alleged crimes, he must be tried in a federal courtroom. So I'm going to talk about this, but it'll it'll give you some insight into how the presidential immunity issue should be resolved when it makes its way to the Supreme Court, okay? So you got White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. He made a similar motion, which was rejected, uh, the appeals court ruling that, yes, Meadows was a federal employee, but proving election interference, trying to keep Donald Trump in office, was not part of the job description of chief uh, of chief of staff. It wasn't what he was being paid to do, and therefore there are no supremacy clause protections to avail him with. Trump was prepared to make the same argument, to get his case severed from the RICO trial and bumped up into a federal courtroom. But after Meadows' requests went down in flames, Trump's attorneys backed off. Trump, uh, Trump's pick for acting Attorney General, Jeffrey Clark, he never got to be acting Attorney General. Jeffrey Clark, who never learned at Harvard that you always put a pair of pants on before answering the door. It might be the feds asking you to step outside so they can search your home. He, this week, filed a motion to delay his trial in the Georgia racketeering case until he can get a ruling on whether this trial belongs in a state or federal venue. But late last week, an appeals court said, you're going on trial in Fulton County. Maybe we'll decide later that Fulton County isn't the proper venue, but right now you're going on trial in the Fulton County courthouse. Now, Clark, I need some water. Hang on. Ah, sorry about that. Uh, Clark is going to lose the appeal. As I said uh, earlier, a three-judge panel on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a lower court ruling that said Mark Meadows had to be tried in a Fulton County courthouse and not a federal courtroom because his alleged crimes were in no way related to his job as White House Chief of Staff. Okay? I bring all this up because it gives you insight into how the Supreme Court will probably rule on presidential immunity. I'm going to guess that when the Supreme Court gets around to ruling on whether or not there's such a thing as presidential immunity, they're going to decide along similar lines, the same way these appeals courts have ruled uh, on severing these uh, White House officials uh, uh, from the RICO trial and moving them into a federal courthouse. Uh, The very reason Meadows and Trump and Jeffrey Clark will not be able to sever their Georgia RICO trials and move them into a federal courtroom is the very same reason Donald Trump cannot claim he is immune from prosecution. Because 
I hope the Supreme I expect the Supreme Court to rule this way, that the crimes Donald Trump is charged with were committed while he was president, but not because he was president. They were committed in spite of the fact that he was president. Now, there might be an argument for immunity if Donald Trump committed a crime while performing the role of president. But overturning an election is not the job of a president. So there's no presidential immunity if such a thing actually exists. Here's an example, I think, of uh, what presidential immunity might look like. I don't know if you remember, but Qasem Soleimani, he was a beloved Iranian military leader. Trump ordered him assassinated in early 2020, and they killed him. He was in Iraq at the time. Now, talking about presidential immunity, let's suppose that while trying to kill Soleimani in Iraq, Trump also accidentally or intentionally killed uh, an American contractor for Eric working for Eric Prince. I'm going to guess in that case, Trump would have some type of presidential immunity. Something along the lines of qualified immunity, uh, like, you know, you can't arrest, you should be able to, but you can't arrest Dick Cheney and George Bush for the illegal invasion of Iraq. Now, it's a crime against humanity, but it's also part of the job description. That's what they're paid to do, to, to launch illegal invasions of other countries. It's part of the job description of being president. So I'm going to guess that's where presidential immunity can be applied. You know, starting illegal wars, killing one million innocent people and nearly bankrupting America. That's part of the job. You have presidential immunity. Collateral damage. You're killing Suleimani. You accidentally kill an American contractor. It's part of the job. But there's nothing in the job description for President of the United States where it says you are supposed to steal an election, at least not your own. Maybe in Iran you can steal an election or El Salvador, but not one here in the United States. Overseas, steal all the elections you want, just not here. Calling local election officials, intimidating local election officials, it's not part of the job. So you, you're not, you don't get immunity. Ulysses S. Grant, right? We've all heard about his getting arrested for speeding while he was president. Because riding too fast on your horse is not part of your job. A blanket presidential immunity would suggest that a president, while he's in the Oval Office, could murder his mistress and get away with it because presidents are immune from prosecution. Well, murdering your mistress... You know, telling Peter Lawford to give Marilyn Monroe an overdose of phenobarbital is not the job description of the Attorney General of the United States or the President. You're, you're not immune from that. That is why this notion 
of presidential immunity is an ersatz legal argument to just postpone Trump's trial until after the election. And by the way, I've been doing this show. This is we're wrapping up our 14th year. We start year 15 on January 1st. And I finally, after 14 years, I finally use the word ersatz. Hang on. That wasn't the sound I was looking for. Hang on. I got to use the word, uh, all right, I guess I should be more prepared. That's uh, the sound I make uh, when I use a fancy word. Well, is anybody still here? Uh, Fonny Willis, unlike the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, and the wife of Clarence Thomas, Jenny Thomas, uh, she went to law school and passed the bar, unlike Jim Jordan and Ginny Thomas, who went to law school but couldn't pass the bar. Uh, anyway, Funny Willis passed the bar. Uh, Jim Jordan, House Judiciary Chairman, uh, and uh, Ginny Thomas didn't pass the bar. That doesn't stop them from questioning Fawny Willis's every move as she marches forward towards prosecuting Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and Donald Trump. If you're not following that trial down in Georgia, the thing to understand is Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and Donald Trump. Those are the three. That's why there's a RICO trial, to flip there are 19 people who are indicted. The idea is to flip 16, get them to turn state's evidence so she can lock up Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, and Mark Meadows. And it looks like she's serious about uh, locking them up. There are rumblings that Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows have tried to make some kind of plea deal with her. She's not interested. Uh, Meadows has already made a deal with Jack Smith's office in the Washington, D.C. interference case. And this is so huge. I mean, this is, we have no idea how big this is going to be. This is going to make Donald Trump's D.C. election interference trial, which is supposed to start in March, it's going to, it is going to be an absolute nightmare for Donald Trump. Mark Meadows was Donald Trump's chief of staff. He was Donald Trump's eyes and ears in the Oval Office. Whatever Donald Trump did, Mark Meadows did it with him. And now he has flipped and turned state's evidence. I don't know how things turn out. I just know it's going to get uglier and uglier for Donald Trump. That civil fraud trial that wraps up on January 15th, where Donald Trump was exposed as being uh, guilty of fraud and not you know, lying about the value of Mar-a-Lago and how humiliating that was, this is going to be exponentially worse. Maybe not politically. That's, <laughs> his voters, who knows 
what they think if they even think. But in our criminal justice system, this is going to get very ugly. They have, with Mark Meadows, Donald Trump dead to rights. So Trump is trying desperately to do two things. Win Iowa, win New Hampshire, win the Republican nomination. That's if he doesn't get the nomination, I, I mean, he'll, you know, there'll be appeals and stuff, but uh, if he doesn't get the Republican nomination, He is in so much trouble. They have Donald Trump dead to rights. That's why his attorneys are desperately trying to get that federal trial in Washington, D.C. postponed until after the presidential election so Trump can move into the Oval Office and dismantle the entire Justice Department. And that's why they filed the cockamamie presidential immunity motion Delay, delay, delay. Well, there's one little problem for Trump when it comes to Georgia. Funny Willis, from what I've been reading in The Guardian, she is not interested in making a deal with Donald Trump. No negotiating. It doesn't matter if Donald Trump becomes president. He can't pardon himself in a state trial. He can't fire Fawny Willis. And it looks like she's not willing to take a guilty plea from Donald Trump in exchange for a letter of apology and some community service. The Guardian is reporting that she is all in on putting Trump behind bars. So, some things to look forward to during this winter. And finally, Rudy Giuliani filed for bankruptcy this week, saying he's $500 million in debt. I owe $500 million. That's what he claims. The man is such, he even lies. This is how big a liar he is. He even lies about his own bankruptcy. Does he expect anybody to believe that he's half a million dollars in debt? I mean, there have been some judgments against him. He's got to pay the election workers more than $100 million, and he owes his lawyers a couple of million, his accountants a couple of million, some ex-wives some money, but half a billion dollars in debt? Well, hey, before I go, uh, we had a little Christmas party uh, in my apartment. My nephews came over. Take a look at this. Uh, we don't have a fireplace, so... Santa came up through the toilet, and uh, my nephews, Nikolai and Chakta, uh, got scared and tried to drown Santa. And we will not be spending Christmas with Uncle Skeeter. He's working. Uh, he works as a human urinal uh, at uh, car shows in Detroit. Uncle Skeeter. He's a human urinal. He will not be with us for Christmas. And this is sweet. As you know, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet are doing time. I I don't want to get into it, but uh, somebody sent me a picture of them enjoying Piglet's sister, 
behind bars. Isn't that sweet? There's Winnie the Pooh and Piglet sharing a slice of Piglet's sister. Just some holiday cheer. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you for listening to this nonsense. I'm going to be doing a show uh, Christmas. I'm just, what am I going to do? What else do I have? Um, do me a favor. If you want to give me a Christmas gift, uh, recommend this show to your friends, please. That's the best way to, uh, to help me. This, is a, this has been a, a remarkable year. Uh, in terms of growing the podcast. And I literally, I, you know, when people say, I couldn't do it without you, I mean that. Uh, the, the only reason this show has grown is because the listeners have shared it. I, so I thank you for that, for sharing this. It's the best way to help. Just share this on social media or in an email or WhatsApp or your phone, whatever you, you do there. Please subscribe to the channel. Please like this episode so I remain in your feed. Please subscribe to my newsletter. Thank you to Bob and Autumn if they're there in the chat room. Thank you for keeping the conversation civil. And uh, I will see everybody tomorrow for Christmas. All right. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>